Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week we have a guest on the show, Rodrigo Aguilera. Rodrigo is an economist, he was born in Mexico and he lives in London, and his writing has appeared all over the place in various forms over the years. Specifically, in these episodes we'll be talking to him about his book, The Glass Half Empty, debunking the myth of progress in the 21st century. Now, this may sound like a rather gloomy take to pick, but the point that he's making is essentially that we shouldn't be happy with a narrow and limited definition of progress when we actually have the capacity to achieve so much more. But of course, if we genuinely do want to see progress, if we want to see things like the elimination of poverty, the application of human ingenuity and compassion, rationality and empathy and all of the good qualities that we think about ourselves, towards solving the problems that exist in the world, you know, if in other words we want things to actually get better, rather than just complacently gesturing at lines on graphs which tell us that things are getting better, we have to begin with an accurate assessment of where we actually are right now, what has led to progress in the past and what barriers still remain, and therefore how we can get further in the future. Rodrigo was incredibly generous with his time, and so I split the resulting interview into two parts. You're about to hear the first part of the interview, where we'll talk about what the new optimism theory is that we're railing against here, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so first off, Rodrigo, thanks very much for agreeing to come on the show. I want to talk to you about your book, The Glass Half Empty, uh, Debunking the Myth of Progress in the 21st Century. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating book. It covers this, this huge swath of territory from science and technology to economics and politics. But, but it's written essentially as a response to, I guess, a whole bunch of books and a, a class of thinking from a group that uh, you've called the New Optimists. And uh, the New Optimists, they have the sort of argument that the world is continually getting better and better and better, whatever that means. And, and you're here to say, actually, it's not so simple. Um, so I think before, before we get into some of that, I, I'd like to sort of ask about your background and how you first came across the work of the New Optimists and, and, and what you thought about it. And, uh, and then we can talk about characterizing their argument and that will get us into the material covered by the book sure well uh, first of all thanks for having me on the podcast um i i love talking about this uh, particular subject obviously because it's uh, it's dear to my heart um my background is i'm an economist and uh i've worked actually my previous job was in the economist intelligence unit which is the consultancy arm of, of the economist which is really ironic because um Let's just say I don't speak very fondly of The Economist in this book. Uh, so regarding the, the original, like wh where did this idea come from or, or who these new optimists are? I first came across this. I mean, I've, I think Steven Pinker is, is the, the kind of the image of this movement. Um, you know, when you think of, you know, the paladin of, of human progress, he sort of comes up all the time, uh, but he's not the only one. And then there's, there's an ecosystem of, of these people. And I wasn't really aware of that. I was aware of Pinker for a long time. I, I wasn't really uh, into his, his, uh, his ideas, but um, it all started when I read a, a piece by Oliver Berkman in the guardian from from 2017 which uh, the title of the piece is is the world getting really getting better than ever and he he calls them the new optimists so I'm, I'm basically stealing his phrasing of it um and broadly speaking there's two types um there's the first type which i think pinker is the one that, that best represents this strand is, is basically the radical centrists you know they're they're not right wing per se um but they're they're quite anti-progressive so to speak. So I would put Pinker in this camp. I would also put the economists because because they frequently uh, refer to the same argument uh, when they're arguing against Bernie Sanders, for example. Uh, 
or when they were arguing against Corbyn, the New York Times as well uh, sometimes does it. So it's basically just kind of liberal centrist uh, publications. The other strand are the libertarians. So these are, you know, hardcore free market uh, people. Um, I, I think the, the two most prominent ones would be uh, Johan Norberg. He's a Swedish um, writer and he works for the Cato Institute, I believe. Um, the other is Matt Ridley. He's uh, a British. He's a he's a lord, actually. He's very well off. Um, he's a science writer as well, and he's also in this definitely libertarian uh, Brexit camp. Um, now, I think if if you want to kind of like narrow what this idea sounds like, uh, you would best go to Nicholas Kristof, who every year in the New York Times publishes a piece saying why. 2018 or 2019 is the best year ever uh, because poverty is... might be a harder one to write this year. It will be very hard to write it this year. I think he might still give it a shot. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I dare him to do it. Um, His (laughs) arguments are basically, (laughs) you know... It's not a sentiment that will (laughs) fall on a a receptive audience this time, I think. Probably not. I'm sure they can find a way to spin it. Um, you know, they, they can surely say, well, it didn't kill as many people as the, you know, the Black Death. Uh, mm-hmm. Yay, progress. Uh, we yeah, that's our basis for comparison, of course, is uh, 13th century levels of, course. of technology. Yeah, there, there's an issue where, where they, they cherry pick the, uh, the the base year that they're comparing. So when when it's convenient, they'll pick 50 years. When it's convenient, they'll pick 200. Or when it's convenient, they'll put uh, 500. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure they can use the Black Death. Um so yeah, Christoph keeps arguing every year is the best one because there's less poverty, there's more sanitation, there's higher life expectancy, uh, more countries are, dem- are democracies than ever before. And yeah, you know, they're, they're not that um, naive to say that it's just a straightforward uh, trajectory. You know, they admit that there's ups and downs, but definitely the long game is positive. And, and usually the reasons are either enlightenment uh, or capitalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so this is the sort of basic rhetoric of the new optimists is you will have a lot of things that you can quantify things like a certain poverty level and, or perhaps it will be GDP, or maybe it will be, as you say, these things like the access to sanitation or healthcare and so on. And you draw a lot of lines on graphs and the lines are always going up. And the argument is that this is happening because of thing x which is what they're seeking to defend so when you when you split the new optimist into the two camps here you sort of have the the one camp that is the the radical centrists you say who are basically saying that and and i think fundamental to their argument as well is this idea that there's a big misconception about this that people think the world is getting worse but it's actually getting better and we're here to explain why and then in your two camps the the, the difference between them is not so much their conclusion as to what's happening in the world but but more a case of what to attribute it to. So in the case of your uh, radical centrists, it's this idea that, okay, well, liberal democracy and these Enlightenment-type ideals are the reason why things are relentlessly getting better and better and better. And in the case of your libertarians, the idea is that you know they're sort of market fundamentalists and the fact that everything has been exposed to the free market means through you know the magic of competition or whatever it may be, that it's providing all of these wonderful things for people. And there's sort of gaps in the logic between what you're actually looking at, how you define progress, and also how you attribute that progress. Uh, do you think that's a fair sort of summary of, of their arguments? 
Yeah, it's very fair. I mean, Pinker's most recent book is basically called Enlightenment Now. So, you know, it's a, a passionate plea on his behalf to, um, you know, uh, discard radicalism, uh, which, you know, he, he, he speaks against the sort of Trumpist uh, radicalism from the far right, but he doesn't, he spares no expense in also bashing the left. And, and Pinker is a self-declared, uh, practically anti, anti-progressive. Um, I mean, he, he writes a whole chapter in Enlightenment now that's basically against progressophobia, uh, in which he, he states that progressives are actually against progress because that means they can pretty much stay, uh, still complain about things. Um, and I think the point that you brought up is, is very important to understand this uh, movement in that this idea that things are much better that people feel is basically an argument that like um, uh, complaining is irrational. Like if you don't agree with the facts and figures that they're presenting, then you're basically irrational. Um, and this goes back to, to this kind of, I mean, from Pinker, it's, it's it's very much from his also background as a as a kind of defender of secular humanism, you know, anti a sort of uh, anti religious type that he was not not quite in like the new uh, atheist camp fully, but he was definitely dipping his toes in that. And you know, these people are are basically just obsessed with presenting uh, a, a vision of, of of human behavior that has to be guided entirely by by just you know cold rationality. There's just no room for, for passion, except the passion against the rational people. Um, and you, and you definitely get a gist of it when you read uh, enlightenment now. Um, but <laughs> and I suppose, I think- sorry, I would just say that what they share is this idea that, as you say, if you don't agree with our analysis, you must be irrational or dominated by your emotions or you don't understand mathematics or something like that. And that's why you have this sort of focus on graphs and facts and figures and the quantifiable uh, metrics that they that they like to use because it, it's, it's almost kind of, an, in a sense, blinding people with numbers and saying, look at this, clearly um, we have all of these numbers and facts and figures and data on our side that demonstrates um, our case to be objectively true. Yeah, I think I think there's also a lot of fault in, in kind of when, when leftists try to counter these arguments. They... They use moral grounds and, and, you know, it, it might be passionate and it might be true, but I've always felt that if you're, if you're going to, you got to hit back to where they're strongest, not with where they're weakest. And if you can make a case using their own weapons, which is numbers and charts. And well, I'm an economist, so I, I have to love numbers and charts. And I felt this was really the way to, to proceed with the book. Also, I mean, I'm not a philosopher. I, I don't think I could write 300 words of, of moral philosophy on why they're wrong. Um, so, you know, when, when you look, the thing is as well, a lot of these, a lot of the figures that they present aren't as clear cut as they, as they want them to see. And and it really takes someone with a bit of knowledge of, of where this data comes from. What does it actually mean that you can actually dissect it and say, look, what you're saying is, is, you know, the, the numbers don't lie, but you're lying with numbers. I mean, th- that's the wonderful thing about the way your book is structured is it, it reads like some of these other books do. Um, in the sense that you know you'll have all of these charts and graphs and, and demonstrations and so on, and it it would look like something out of our world and data or something like that uh, in different places. But the point that you're and I mean that as a compliment. Um, the point being that you're kind of making the point um, that there are many many different ways of looking at uh, the state of the world as it is at the moment and as it has evolved over the last few decades. Um, 
that don't necessarily look the same as just an, an exponential graph that's endlessly going upwards with time on the x-axis and progress on the y-axis. Um, but before we get too much into debunking some of this stuff specifically here, I, I think I want to say for me, so my kind of day job is like a climate scientist. I, I write a lot about climate. And I, the idea of optimism versus pessimism comes up a lot here too, because I think there's one group of people who are maybe too optimistic that technology is going to solve the problem, that the free market will solve the problem, that it will make uh, clean alternatives cheaper and so on, and that we don't need major political efforts or systemic change to fix anything. And then there's another group of people who are way too pessimistic and they think that we're inevitably doomed and they will sort of ignore or downplay the progress that has been made um, on decarbonizing our systems and, and coming up with solutions and agreements to try and do that. And that can also sometimes get to the point of, well, there's no sense doing anything to help now. And then those of us who try and fall somewhere in between these sort of overly simplistic takes on the situation spend a lot of time arguing against one group or the other. And I think the reason we do is from my perspective, and I think it's a perspective that comes across in the book really well, is that the important thing is not how well we are doing, but how well we could and should be doing. And what we want to avoid is the sort of the complacency or the despair that comes out from being excessively optimistic or pessimistic. You know, if, if you note something optimistic, we want that to spur you onto action. And if you note something pessimistic, that should spur you onto action. So I, I want to sort of say, like, just if you could articulate your motivation in debunking the new optimists, because some people might think, why do you want to write a book that says the glass is half empty, things aren't as good as you think they are? And um, I think that would be an overly simplistic way to look at this book. So, you know, why is their narrative something that we need to combat? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I'm also in, in that camp. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have written this book if I wasn't hopeful that something good could come out of it. Um, you know, just because you you can admit that maybe things are, are not nearly as good as, as they should be and, and you might come off as a pessimist, that doesn't mean that you, you know, there's a difference between pessimism and, and, and nihilism. And I'm, I'm definitely not a, a, a nihilist and I would not want anyone to read this book and, and come out with that sense that there's nothing we can do just because these people are wrong. Um, my main motivation for writing this book is because I feel that this idea of progress, at least how they're presenting it, is is dangerous. Like it, it really is dangerous um, because it's fundamentally a defense of the status quo against any form of of, of change, of systemic change. Um, you know, Pinker is a centrist, but he's very, he's a virulent anti-progressive, and he he would not surely want the type of policies that that, that the left wants uh, to ever be implemented. Um, libertarians as well, they don't want to budge from, from free market uh, economics. Uh, you know, they're even more steadfast on this. So, you know, the message is that if things are going so well and we only need changes at the margins and we should stop complaining and not, and really just accept the kind of policy menu that has been fed to us for the last uh, 30 and 40 years, because everything else is too dangerous. Um, and, and this is really why the appeal of this narrative is, is to the wealthy. Um, you know, Bill Gates said that um, Stephen Pinker's previous book, which is uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which actually is, is that's not a bad book. I, I you know, it's uh, I'm a fan of, of military history and and I agree that it, it makes some some it makes better points than some of his other books. Uh, so Bill Gates said that that was his favorite book of all time. And then when Enlightenment now comes out, he says, now this is my favorite book of all time. Um, he also 
gave away for free to any new student in the U.S. I think it was uh, one of these last years, 2017 or 18, um, Hans Rosling's Factfulness, um, which also makes this claim of like, hey, things are great. Uh, just the media has kind of blinded you into thinking otherwise. So it justifies people like him. It justifies his wealth. It justifies his his very capitalist form of philanthropy. Um, it justifies him not getting taxed. Uh, so I think what's obvious to reasonable people like you and me, and I presume the people who are listening to us, is that the current path, you know, is is unsustainable in terms of the, the social breakdown and political breakdown that we're experiencing as a result of inequality and, and other aspects of liberal democracy. Um, the, th- the threat of climate change, of course, which they just don't take very seriously. You know, as you mentioned, they just believe that science will ultimately bail us out and that we shouldn't really make any, any radical economic or political changes to, to fight it as, as much as we could. Um, so that's really the motivation. I, I do think it's, it's it's um, it's presented in, in such a harmless way. It's like, well, you know, it's great to know that we're not doing bad as a species, um, but it's it's dangerous because it, it prevents you from doing the things that you want to do. And, and in a way, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I didn't come up with this idea until after writing the book, but I think I, I, if there's ever a second edition, I might add a, another chapter on it. It's a, I'm getting a sense that this progress narrative is, is kind of the new the new nationalism, um, except on a global scale. So rather than, than just thinking that your country can't do wrong, uh, now you just think that humanity can't, can't do wrong. And in the end, you end up with, with, with the disaster. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think this is the interesting point here is that, you know, when you have this narrative that's very simple and just focuses on areas where there have been uh, some measurable progress or at least some metrics seems to indicate that there is some progress you're able to ignore these threats so you know there's this idea that climate change will fix itself because we're doing so well and we're developing such brilliant technologies that we will solve the problem uh, automatically and that inequality uh, which is you know worsening within nations and you know is not getting much better internationally either um, and we'll talk about that a bit more later on in, in more detail, but that this is sort of just the price of doing business and maybe even a good thing because it's sparking uh, competition and it's not something that you should try and get rid of because it's necessary uh, for the system to function in the way that it's doing, which will you know, somehow eventually deliver all of the things that we want. And you know, I, I think Pinker's book, um, there, there was a, a little chapter in there where he talked about um, the field of existential risk studies, which are, you know, we've talked to some people on the, on the show here. Um, in in that field, and he's very dismissive in that chapter of the idea that there can be these threats from things like pandemics, uh, things like unforeseen consequences of technology, and so on. Um, he thinks this is all kind of Cassandra stuff that you don't need to worry about. And in the book, he has this passage that said, "Disease outbreaks no longer become pandemics because we can rapidly develop vaccines and combat them, and you know <laughs> our systems of governance and so on are so brilliant that they can do these things." and you know, I I think even when we just look back at the year we've just all lived through together, um, you can see why the oversimplification of this narrative is such a big problem, because he's dismissed the idea that we needed to be more prepared for a pandemic, or that there are things that should change about our governance system that would make us more prepared. And it's, it's a mixed bag, because it's true that we have a vaccine very quickly, um, and a lot of that is down to scientific and, and technological progress. But it's also true that just saying that we have that innovation doesn't solve 
any of the logistical problems or prevent the pandemic from taking off in the first place. Um, so I think it's kind of important to think about the, the ways in which this narrative is flawed because it's too simplistic and because of what it misses out and because it allows us to have this sort of complacency towards problems that exist now and problems that might exist in the future as well. Yeah, I think their take on, on uh, pandemics uh, did not age well at all. Um, and a funny thing is I didn't, you know, he, he mentions all these different existential risks and, and how, you know, downplays all of them. Um, you can't really focus on, on kind of countering each one. I didn't want the book to just be like a point by point uh, debunking of, of everything he says. Um, which is why actually I don't, I don't, uh, I didn't mention pandemics at all in, in the book. Uh, I, I focus mostly of the existential risk of climate change and uh, nuclear uh, warfare. Um, but I mean, with, with, with the pandemic, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just stunning how, how like even the examples that he, that he gives is, is just so amateurish in the sense that like he brings up Ebola as, as one of the examples of, of how we sort of successfully uh, prevented it getting worse. And, and, and you, you, you look at, you know, the differences between Ebola and, and coronavirus is it's completely different uh, disease in terms of, you know, how you fight it, what are the economic impacts, et cetera. And especially with a, with a disease of, of this nature. And I think what's really interesting about, about the virus, um, I think it's fascinating because, well, it's not, definitely not one of the deadliest viruses that we've ever faced far from it. Um, but it's, I think there hasn't been a, a virus in, in human history that has such a capacity to destroy an economy the way, uh, the way COVID does um, just because of its, you know, it's very long uh, incubation period. Um, it, it just can spread so easily, so silently and, because there's, it's so expensive to treat. Um, you know, when when you die of influenza, you don't spend four weeks in an intub- in a ventilator. Uh, same with the Black Death. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a disease that really requires a lot of investment um, in t- in treating it because your hospitals just get swamped. And and I think what what I found really shocking uh, during you know when the pandemic started is is just the knowledge of how few beds there are in a hospital system. Um, I think when you, when you realize just how few there are, like in, I think London had something like 700 at the start of the pandemic, and then they raised it to 1,500. And that's like, you you think, Jesus Christ, like that's, that's nothing. Uh, And in many cases, they were able to raise the number of beds available by discharging people back into care homes. Yeah, exactly. They had COVID that caused the, you know, that in many Again, you know, all of this is still evolving, uh, so we'll have to see what the final verdict is on all this stuff. But it seems like that has probably contributed to the high rate of mortality in the uh, in the early stage of the pandemic here in the UK. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm um, I'm here in Mexico right now, so your uh, listeners are aware. And um, in Mexico, the statistic is that eight out of ten people have died outside of a hospital. So if if, if our hospital system hasn't collapsed, it's because people haven't even gotten to the hospital. Um, so it's, it's really like how close we've been to a, an even greater catastrophe and, and what the sacrifices that, that happened. So this is not comparable to just any other other virus. Um, and so whatever he says about Ebola or even just aren't able to be applied to the situation. So, you know, this success here is just not a good analogy of how we're going to respond to the next threat. 
um, which I think is very a big flaw in their argument. Mm-hmm. And just on on COVID, because uh, I think we will get back onto the kind of where this leaves uh, all of this stuff towards the end. But just thinking about the actual virus itself, you know, we did an episode of this show a couple of years ago about the threat from viruses, and we always said that the worst one would be one that was incredibly deadly um, and had an extremely long incubation period, which would allow it to spread around the place before people realised uh, that it was going to be a problem. We have this one now, which is not as deadly as it might have been. Um, but it's interesting how the responses in different nations have depended, I think, a lot on that nation's history. So here in the UK, you know, we know that specifically um, a lot of the planning that we had was for pandemic flu, like the swine flu in 2009. And that's why we had this idea to try and delay the peak of the epidemic rather than contain the virus. And then you look at countries in Asia, like South Korea and Japan and so on, where their response was guided by their experience with SARS and, uh, and MERS in Korea as well. And their approach was just to treat this disease like it was an incredibly deadly disease um, that could not be allowed to spread and to try and treat it with a lot of very, very early social distancing and contact tracing and testing and so on. And in some ways, the the virus almost seems to be this, this um, very cruel uh, thing to be constructed for the way that our societies are run at the moment, right? Because as you say, you know, the, the low hospital capacity, part of that is how if you have this idea of a, a, very, a very slim state, a very efficient state, a state that's run like a business, and um, you, you can't justify within that uh, lots of extra spare hospital capacity ready for a surge or ready for some disaster, right? Um, it doesn't seem to fit in with your idea of what efficiency should be. Um, and at the same time, the disease is it's quite deadly. Um, it's deadly enough that governments wouldn't have had a political uh, they wouldn't have had political support for allowing those people to to die who would die of it. Um, yet in a way, it, it's <laughs> it's almost not deadly enough for everyone to take that seriously within a polity. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, so completely. It, I also think that's that's a major contributing very, factor. Of... <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting point that like <laughs> governments face this choice where they felt like, and it was a false dichotomy, but they felt like they were forced to throw the economy and sacrifice the economy on the altar of these lives because the trade-off would have been so obvious. He's written this book that says everything is progressing and everything is brilliant and none of these problems are anything that you seriously have to worry about. And therefore he can't even inquire into these problems and, and take risks seriously and take problems seriously because it would upset this overly simplistic narrative where everything is just getting better and all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. And that's why I think as you say, this narrative is so damaging. And you get the impression that he he thinks that we're at the point where basically every problem that we face has a solution. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, we're definitely better off in terms of our capacity to, to solve problems than we were 50 or 100 years ago. But still, you know, again, COVID, the great example of, of, of something that just is unprecedented in the nature of the virus that we clearly did not have a good solution for it. Or at least I think that what's also interesting about COVID is that the the type of societies that I think um, he and, and definitely the libertarians most uh, would like the world to be like, which is basically, you know, Western liberal democracies, liberal capitalist democracies, have done much worse than, than societies that are that are more communitarian, that have stronger states, um, 
again, the, the comparison with Asia is, is a classic example. I mean, I, I just don't think, I just can't imagine that you have such, you know, flagrant flaunting of rules uh, as you have in, in Britain or, or in, even in Europe, uh, which, which, yeah, it says a lot of, of just why, you know, certain, certain types of, of mentalities are, are not uh, always the best ones. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think it's interesting as well, just when we're talking about this idea that progress has been made and, you know, the new optimist philosophy is a graph of progress against time that's increasing. Um, it's sort of looking back through history and thinking about how people have conceived of progress in the past and previous historical eras where people have had optimism about technology and moral progress. You, you bring up the Victorian era in Britain as an example of that. And I think it's just interesting to kind of talk about what, what, do, what do people mean by progress? And again, some historical perspectives where people could have made similar arguments about progress and then, you know, turned out to be incorrect. The kind of historical take on that. Yeah, so I, I mentioned in the book that you could basically write this, the exact same argument that Picker is making now if you were in Europe in June 1914, um, you know, because you had decades of uninterrupted relative peace. You know, there were a few um, local wars, but not really a world war since the, the Napoleon period. Um, you had an absolutely astounding amount of, of scientific progress during that period, an astounding increase in, in human prosperity as well. Um, and then it all went down the drain with World War I, uh, not just World War I, but then you had the Great Depression, then you had World War II. So these were a couple of decades where things uh, were, were definitely not <clears throat> uh, going in the direction that, that I think the Victorians would have wanted um, society to go. Uh, so, which is why, you know, this, this idea that, that we can face certain risks and that these risks could have absolutely catastrophic consequences. You, you just can't be so nonchalant about it the way that, that Pinker is. Now, again, they, they play a lot on the long game saying, well, yeah, World War One, World War Two happened, but in the end, you know, let's just, let's just forget about these blips, uh, you know, the, the, the movement is still heading up. And again, this is, this is just very limited. I think we're going to speak a bit more later on on, on kind of the, the statistical aspects of this. But in the book, I, I think we, we just need to redefine what progress is. And we, we just can't look at it as, well, point B is better than point A, therefore progress. I think that's just, just absolutely simplistic. And I give a definition in the book. Uh, which is, and I'm, I'm quoting it, uh, progress is the historical development of increasingly effective norms and institutions that harmonize individual well-being with social cohesion, help mitigate conflict and achieve all of this at minimum expense to other societies or the environment. Um, one key point here, which is the minimum expense to other societies, I think should be obvious in terms of the Victorian era was great for Britain it was not so great for a lot of other societies that were part of the British empire at the time. Um, as a, as a Mexican as well, I can argue, well, Mexico is definitely better off, uh, after the Spanish conquest, but that doesn't mean that the indigenous people that lived here before, uh, are better off, you know, certainly, you know, maybe in absolute terms they are, but they're basically to this day are kind of third rate citizens in their original land. Um, so you have to you have to ask them whether this was an outcome that they would have desired. So 
you know, th this sort of progress tends to be most vocal in the societies that are um, not being constrained by others in progressing. So it's easy for, for Americans to say that. It's easier for Brits to say that. Um, the, the, the corollary to this definition is that progress is only real when we minimize the gap between what we can reasonably achieve and what we've actually achieved. Now, this, you know, I can, I can sense that someone like Pinker would immediately have an issue with this and say, well, we, we don't really know how, how good society could be if we did everything right. And of course, that's true. But we can definitely, we have a reasonable uh, idea of, of what that is, even if we couldn't ascertain it. You know, we, we can say, for example, that the U.S. probably would be better off it if it had universal health care. Like, that's a reasonable uh, thing to say. And, and you don't really have to question that counterfactual much. Um, we have countries that do well in certain things. That gives us the, the idea that, yes, we could, we could be in that level if we did them. And if I, if I were to give an analogy of, of like a kind of individual case, um, it's, it's the example of, of, well, graduating from high school is a good thing, right? I mean, no one would say that it's better to not graduate from high school than to graduate from high school. But if you graduated high, at high school at age 28 without, you know, any like, significant life circumstances having prevented you from doing that at age 18 when most people graduate, I would definitely say that there's reason to believe that that is not ideal, even though it is progress. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you look at it from that perspective, I think is, is when you realize just how, how much more we could be doing now that we haven't done. And there's a, there's a term for this that, uh, uh, Jason Hickel, he's, he's written a couple of, of books, uh, He's also very uh, anti-Pinker. He's had a couple of rows with Pinker on Twitter, which are quite amusing. And uh, he, he gives a, a name with, with regards to poverty, the fact that we're in a situation now where we could eradicate poverty. We definitely have the, the, the scientific and technological and, and um, economic wealth to, to eliminate poverty, but we haven't. So actually, it reflects worse on our society now that we have 10% poverty by the World Bank standards than if we had 50%, say, by mid-20th century, because we didn't have those resources and we didn't have that capacity then. So he calls that the moral egregiousness of poverty. And I think once you look at progress as a whole in this term, in these terms, then it's it's much more clear why we're, we, we have an argument to make of, of why this linear vision of progress is wrong. So there are, there are a few points I want to pick up on from what, from what you've said there. Um, the first one is this idea that the definition of progress can't just be we're at point A, which is higher than point B, and therefore we've succeeded. And one of the brilliant ways that you debunk this in the book is by pointing to Venezuela as an example. Because if you look at Venezuela's uh, GDP per capita, which is the kind of metric that the new optimists would like, um, even after the economic crisis that, that, that has uh, taken hold there in recent years, it's still doing better than it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, so if you wanted to be a new optimist from Venezuela, you could say, well, you know, everything that happened uh, with, with Chavez and Maduro and so on has, has led us to this point where we're better off than we were 20 years ago. And therefore, clearly, these systems have you know, succeeded and worked. And this sort of um, kind of flies in the face of the sort of argument that a lot of the people, especially on the libertarian wing, who are pointing to Venezuela as this terrible uh, tragedy w would, would say, um, would you would you want to talk about that that argument a, a little bit more? 
Yeah, I, 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 I like cheeky it. one, but quite funny. Yeah, I, I really love that argument, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm left wing. I'm, I'm socialist. You know, I'm not afraid to say it. I think Venezuela, you know. Venezuela is an absolute disaster, and I think we we should call it out uh, for what it is. And um, I, I really love that you know the, the way that what I mentioned earlier that they cherry pick kind of the base here that they want to compare it to. And yeah, you know if I want to compare if I want to make my comparisons to the to the 1950, which is when GDP data started coming out. Well, yeah, Venezuela is is, is much better off now than it was uh, back then. Um, in fact, in in every and I, and I include a table in the book comparing it to like the fifties and sixties and then pretty much almost every indicator of the socioeconomic development, uh, Venezuela is better off now than it was, you know, years of schooling, life expectancy, et cetera. You know, I think the only one that you can claim that is, is much worse now is crime. Uh, but everything else is, is much better than, than ever. So, you know, a Venezuelan pinker could easily just say, well, you know, it's a blip on the radar, like like World War One and World War Two. But you know, the long game Venezuela is is, is, uh, is moving ahead. I think this 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 example, as you say, it's, it's cheeky because I really want to 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 highlight the point in a way that that you can't really uh, counter argue it easily. But I think there's a there's an even better example that came out this year, um, which is more nuanced, and and it's. Uh, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, comparing the situation of Black people in the U.S. today versus, say, the 1960s after the civil um, the civil rights movement happened, and in almost every circumstance, there has been progress. Um, but once you compare that progress with relatively to whites, that it hasn't budged. So, so you know, Trump you would always claim that black unemployment was the lowest ever. Um, but actually, the, the ratio of the black unemployment rate with the white unemployment rate hasn't really changed much at all in the last, you know, since the 60s, 70s um, and other indicators as well. So, you know, you think, well, the idea is that we don't just want black people or any other minority uh, to be better off than they were before. We want them to close the gap because there's no moral reason why black people should be worse off than white people in the US. Um, so that, that again is, is the point. And I think a lot of people who have, who have criticized the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, these sort of kind of YouTube alt writers, you know, they, they keep bringing up this argument to, to, to supposedly debunk it saying, well, black people are better off now than they've ever been. Well, no, that's that's not the point that you know. That's that's not what we should be aiming for. We need to close the gap. Mm -hmm. And you sort of see how childish it is. You know, if uh, <laughs> it's like uh, if I don't know, I have a twin brother. It's like if our, when we were kids, our dad had given us pocket money and uh, he'd given a hundred quid and said, "Split it between you and your brother." And he'd given me one pound and said, "What are you complaining about? <laughs> You're better off than you were five minutes ago." Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, there's a there's a there's a very famous game where you where you play that with people. You uh, you uh, you basically choose to split uh, an amount of money, like a hundred, but then the other person decides if if they accept the deal, then you actually get to split the money, and if they don't agree on the deal, then you then you all get zero. And so the the game is designed to basically prove that that it's irrational that it's actually. Um, quite irrational to 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 pick any any number that is even remotely, or rather, it's rational to pick a, a very unfair 
uh, split. So economic theory, standard economic theory would say that you would accept a split of 99 to 1 just because mm-hmm. 1 is better than 0. You know, there's no argument there. Any libertarian should say, yes, 1 is better than 0. And yet when you actually do this, when you play it with people, you realize that most people, and I've done this, you know, just for fun, and and I don't know, I think the lowest that anyone has accepted the split is, I think, 70-30. Because after that, you, you, you realize it's unfair. You're just like, well, why should I accept, you know, a 90 to 10 split or a 91 to 1 split? I'd rather just screw you over uh, just because I think this is such an unfair thing. So in this kind of uber rational uh, worldview that these people have, uh, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no space for, for this kind of, these perceptions of, of injustice that people have. And yes, they are emotional. Um, yes, they are irrational, but they're valid and, and people behave politically on the basis of these, of these, uh, uh ideas. That's what he doesn't understand. That's why he doesn't understand um, why inequality is such a problem. Why he he just discards it and says, literally says that inequality is not a, a factor in human well-being. And I think you know it's interesting. So there's a few things that we can come onto here, but I think one thing that is an interesting strand that I want to talk about is you talk about this idea. Okay, let's say we're all who the neoclassical economists think we should be, and we're these kind of rational people who maximize our self-interest. And the only thing that we care about is, you know, preferably me- measuring it in a dollar value. Then you would accept a society that does this ninety-nine to one split because you still get the one, and that's how yeah. you rationally maximize your own self-interest, uh, rather than blowing up the whole thing and saying, "No, I, I won't accept a society with a ninety-nine to one split. I'd rather we both get nothing." And yet, as you say, in, in politics, when we see, um, v- you know, votes taking place, it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, someone came and they, they were talking about the Brexit vote to Brexit voting people in, in the north of England, which you know has historically had disadvantages over the rest of the country. And uh, they tried to persuade them not to vote for Brexit by saying, well, the GDP is projected to go down by X. And the response from the audience was just, that's your GDP, not ours. You know, So people, people don't feel like they're, uh, if people don't feel like they're getting a fair deal, you're not going to be able to persuade them um, that they should kind of take the crumbs from the table if, if that's how it's perceived and if that's how it is. Um, and th- the other thing I want to talk about when it comes to this idea of uh, uh, the influence of the ideas of economists, uh, which, as Keynes told us, basically run the world, um, is, you know, the, the, within the idea of these new optimists, you have this this concept that you can't possibly do anything to disturb the way things are. Um, because it will make things inevitably worse. And this is sort of the justification for having these huge levels of inequality in society. You've talked about, you know, the US would be objectively better if it had universal health care. Uh, one of the things that, that I think about is their favorite statistic, which I think we'll come on to in a bit, is is this extreme poverty uh, statistic. Um, and there's we're supposed to be happy because now there's only 800 million people uh, in this extreme poverty. Um, and I calculated that you could have a world where the top 100 billionaires um, still got richer and that extreme poverty was completely erased. You would you would only have to <laughs> slow down the rate of growth of wealth of the top 100 billionaires in the world and you would have no, no poverty at all by this definition. And I guess the point that I'm making is you would have to believe that the world that we're in really is the best of all possible worlds. And it's in some sort of glorious equilibrium that can't possibly be disturbed by anything from the outside 
for you to say, well, actually, I'd rather have the world where billionaires get richer more slowly, but we have no extreme poverty whatsoever. Does, does that make sense? And I think that comes from economics because you have in, in neoclassical economics this idea um, that is often sort of a caricature that politicians adopt when they don't really understand the economics, um, that if you just let free markets evolve, they evolve to the perfect uh, equilibrium and anything that you try and do in the form of regulation or in the form of redistribution will only make everyone else worse off. Um, so would you sort of like to talk about that? Do you think that it's these um, this economism and these misinterpreted ideas from economics, yourself with a background in economics, that are kind of influencing this philosophy, particularly, I guess, on the libertarian side? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it, it does influence even the, the centrist uh, strand of, of this argument, even though they're not. I mean, you know, to his credit, I think... Pinker, being a Canadian, has has uh, you know some slight semblance of, of social democratic sensibilities. Uh, he's not as as a f- hardcore free marketeer, and he he criticizes the kind of U.S. hyper capitalist model uh, quite a number of times in in Enlightenment now. So so there is a clear distinction between what you know. Same with with the Economist. You know, the Economist is is clearly it's not as sort of savagely. Um, focused on deregulation uh, or like privatizing, you know, it's not advocating privatizing the NHS, et cetera. So they, they definitely take, a, a, they're, they're not as extreme as, as the libertarians, but this idea that inequality is not uh, an intrinsic aspect of human well-being is, is or, or detrimental to growth, um, as you mentioned, especially the latter part is definitely very overt in, in the language that you saw in the 80s and 90s by international financial institutions. Um, there was a willingness to accept a, a, a smaller slice of the pie for people as long as the pie just kept getting bigger. So this focus on just GDP growing meant that, well, you know, uh, you'd be better as, as long as your income is growing, it does not matter how much more money you know the 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 1% has and as we know now well a lot of people knew back then but i'm just saying as as we're more conscious of this now it's not quite simple uh you know for example uh the fact that that there are more millionaire billionaires and that they are more and they have more wealth than they ever have also means that that wealth translates into political power. And it means that it translates into, into policies that actually just help them get richer rather than the rest. Um, we know as well that inequality generates a, a ton of, of different, um, you know, social and, and psychological conditions in people. There's a really good book, uh, I'm, I don't know if, if you've read, maybe some of you in, in uh, some of your listeners have read uh, The Spirit Level, which is, is absolutely brilliant book. I think it was from 2011-ish or something. Uh, which I basically, just got it the other day, actually. I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's really good. Uh, you're going to love it. And it's not written by economists. I think it's it's written by an epidemiologist and, and uh, I forget what, what the other uh, co-author's profession is. But it basically just goes on and, and, and shows how inequality the countries that have highest inequality are also the ones that that have really terrible uh, social economic outcomes uh, you know mental health issues teenage pregnancies things like that um so yeah and, and it goes back to the, again this this 99 and 1 uh, split which people should find acceptable 
and yet they don't, and they'd be willing to to kind of bring the system down, which is what we've seen since Trump and Brexit in a way. And I don't want to say that inequality is the only factor that explains this. And I think, you know, I have a, a chapter in my book which talks a bit of, of this kind of new new right that's come into power. Um, but it definitely is a factor. It definitely is a, a an aspect that you just cannot, you know, we, we live in a society that at least well, we who live in the UK, um, as well as people in the US would agree that that there is there's just no concept in, in politics that even the worst paid job should lead to a livable life. Um, and I think we, you know, the moment that you realize that, you know, even if you're flipping burgers in McDonald's for eight hours a day, you should be able to uh, afford a dignified life. Um, it, it shouldn't just be a dignified life uh, to certain people who have certain incomes and have certain jobs, you know, because we live in societies that, that praise the work ethic and yet don't reward that work ethic at all. And that's, that's the, a big problem, I think, in, in the more liberal capitalist societies than in the social democratic ones. So, I mean, we, we've come on to it now. One idea that we've talked about quite a lot in this show is economic inequality, particularly the we've talked about Walter Scheidel's idea that economic inequality tends to increase within most societies over time and is usually only reversed by these big catastrophes like uh, wars, famines, revolutions, historically plagues. We've talked about COVID-19 as being a perfect virus for inducing a crisis in the system as it exists at the moment. Um, it seems to be that it hasn't actually done as much destruction as would be necessary to reverse inequality and it's actually just accelerating trends towards greater inequality because of how the response to it has gone and who the burden has fallen on and so on and and the Scheidel perspective is a rather bleak one because if inequality is producing these awful outcomes and it inevitably rises until some calamity reverses it there's the question of how can we fix the problem without enduring the calamity and it's not even clear whether we could have these calamities anymore uh, you know, whether we could have a World War II style mass mobilization war in the age of nuclear weapons um, is not clear. And obviously, it's not a desirable way to fix your problem if you can find some other way to puncture the growing inequality before it gets to this crisis level. Um, and I think one of the most interesting questions that you raise in the book is to say, OK, well, what actually happened during that anomalous time after the war, the post-war period between 1945 to 1975, where Western societies at least didn't see this rising inequality. And I think it links into these political movements as well of, uh, you know, Brexit and, and, and the election of Trump and so on, which always hark back to a, a nostalgia for a better era. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. There was um, obviously in the UK, as I, as I say this now, there's a lot of Brexit stuff going on. Um, there was someone talking about how everything was great back in uh, before we joined the common market in 1973. Um, and they're old enough to remember how it was. And I just want to say, well, you know, the top rate of marginal tax was like 85% back then. Why do you never include that in your assessment of um, the halcyon days of the 70s? And, and instead, it's all about not being part of the common market and so on. But anyway, um, so I think it would be really interesting to talk about kind of what, what's fueling inequality and what, what's driving it and how you think it could be reversed without recourse to one of these catastrophes. Yeah, so going back to the Walter Scheidel's point, which I think is is very compatible with with elite theory, which I bring up in the book uh, quite extensively. This idea that 
over time, any kind of political organization tends toward hierarchy, tends toward uh, being less democratic than it was uh, when it started. Um, so you could, I mean, this is really horrible to say, but you could say that I guess inequality is kind of the default um, situation in, uh, as far as human nature and human organization uh, goes on because naturally people who come to power eventually want more power and through that power uh, they will take interests that benefit themselves whether it is either capturing rents that they should not be capturing or just making it easier to blur the lines between political power and economic power which i think is is what we see in in countries like the uk or, or the U, or the us which aren't you know kleptocratic in the way that we would see like a third world uh country uh, steal its own resources for the ruling class, but rather it's just a revolving door in which uh, politics becomes um, an agent for economic elites to to basically do whatever they want. And there's been studies on this. I quote them in the book. It sort of show that you know the 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 outcome of of um, legislation in the U.S. Uh, basically favors elite interests rather than. Uh, public the public good um and if i could just interject briefly sorry just uh economically speaking as well the focus on growth is the panacea that solves all of the problems rather than redistributing what we have happens to be a solution that also favors people who have wealth at the moment you know whether it's trump touting the stock market uh, which benefits the half of americans who own stocks and particularly the wealthiest by the largest amount but not not anyone else um you can sort of see how uh there is a tendency, even in a simple financial system that allows capital to make returns on itself um, towards greater inequality over time because the haves get more rewards out of the system than the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you could sum it up, it's, it's basically inequality is a political choice. And I think during that period, you know, the post-war period that, that inequality was successfully brought down, um, you had a combination of factors that you don't, ha- you didn't have before, and you don't have since. And well, one of them is there was a high, very high rate of unionization. Uh, so unions are actually very effective uh, in terms of regulating inequality uh, because it gives employees uh, a voice on 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 how to organize on organizing and getting higher wages than they would if if, if unions didn't exist. Um, as you mentioned, the high marginal tax rates, you know, 80, even 90% was not uncommon during this period. Um, and, and I think I need to, to really hammer in a point that, that a lot of people uh, fail to understand what a marginal tax rate is. It's not what, it's not the tax that you pay. It's really the tax that you pay after a certain point. So, you know, people like you and me would not be paying that 80, 90%, uh, but Bill Gates definitely would. Um, so it's this willingness to to just not tax the rich, the very ultra rich, uh, that is quite unique in our in our in our day and age, or, or rather unique after the post war period. Uh, then there's other things. There's like enforcement of antitrust regulation. I mean, the U.S. has on paper a very effective uh, antitrust regulation that goes back to the period of, of the trust busting era uh, under Teddy Roosevelt, which was they were very effective in, in uh, breaking up monopolies back then. But they, this, you know, th- th- this legislation is just there. It's not being used against any of the companies that, that are currently gobbling up uh, their own industries. 
You also had things like capital controls, which prevented money from flowing as easily as now across borders, because that's just, you know, if, if, if one country decides to tax, you know, the, the problem with globalization and especially uh, the globalization of capital is that it's very hard for a single country to really implement an effective policy uh, against inequality when it involves certain things like, well, how do I tax uh the 1% wealth, well, the 1% is just going to move it offshore or move it to a different jurisdiction. And you have countries like Ireland, you have countries like the Netherlands, and you have all these, uh, uh, you know, British overseas territories that, that, that basically exist to, to help out corporations and individuals do this. And you also had state control of, of social services, which in many cases, you know, contrary to what the libertarians think is more is a more efficient way to run them. And at least it guarantees, you know, it might not be um, as good a service for those who can pay a private service, but it guarantees at least uh, more egalitarian access to those services. Um, so I think, you know, the, the reason that some societies have chosen to not go down this path that, that like the UK and the US does has, is an effort. Um, there's, there's some really good statistics that I, that I, make a chart in, in the book and it's the if you compare the so there's a there's a widely known indicator of inequality which is the the genie index uh, and in most and un, most unequal societies would have a genie of over 0.40 more or less if you're under 40 you're you're kind of okay and there's a few tiny few countries that have like low like 0.30 or upper 0.20s um, but actually, some of some of these very equal egalitarian societies actually have really high genie levels before taxation and redistribution, which means like, and, and these, this includes like a lot of the Nordics, it includes Germany. So the only thing that's basically keeping these uh, these countries from having U.S. levels of inequality is the welfare state, and the welfare state is expensive; it requires taxation. So. One of the solutions that I propose in the book is, well, if we're going to address inequality is that we should, we should better, we're better off doing it at the root, which is directly where this, this inequality happens, which is within companies and between companies. Um, and that's where you get into other, into a bigger discussion of whether capitalism is the ideal 20th century economic model, especially because as time goes by, as populations age, you know, after crisis like COVID, a lot of countries will not have the same resources that they had before. Um, it's going to be more and more expensive to maintain, you know, the, if you're not Norway that's blessed with oil and a gigantic sovereign wealth fund, um, even what rich Western European countries are going to find it increasingly difficult to maintain the quality of life that they would have, that they have now. Um, so... That's a very difficult question. I think that is why we need to have, as, as I mentioned in the book, there's a there's a soft critique of capitalism, which is, well, how do we reform it at the margins? What do we change here and there? And, you know, this is definitely necessary. I think it's the minimal level of discussion that we need to have. There's also a hard question of whether capitalism itself is an ideal model for the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. And thanks again to Rodrigo Aguilera for coming on the show. You can find his book, The Glass Half Empty, on sale at Repeater Books in ebook and paperback form right now, and you can catch up with his writings at the LSE blog and in other places. I really do recommend the book because it dives into a whole range of different issues from economics to politics, 
um, social issues in, in far more depth than we had time to catch up with, even in the course of these interviews. And you'll find a lot to contemplate there and think about one way or the other. It's very, very thought-provoking and an antidote to a, a type of argument that we see a lot of these days. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. We rely on your donations to keep the show going, which you can do via the PayPal link on that website. You can also subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash physicalattraction. If you did that, you would have heard this episode months ago, as all the episodes there are released pretty much the second I've finished editing them, alongside numerous bonus episodes which are only available to subscribers. Thank you so much to everyone who is currently supporting the show and all of your favourite independent content creators that way. It means an awful lot to me and them that you can help them in doing the things that they want to do and spending time on them. If you have any comments, questions, concerns about the show, you can get in touch via the contact form on physicspodcast.com. I try to respond individually to every email that I get, as those of you who've corresponded with me before will know, so please do get in touch if there's anything you'd like to chat about. Of course, if you don't want to do that, you can also support us by telling as many other people who might be interested in such idle questions as how to make the world a better place to take a listen. Again, unlike whichever celebrity has started a podcast this week or the big networks, we are independent and rely on listeners to help us spread the word of the show. So if you found it interesting, please do tell other folks who might be interested to give the episode a listen. Until next time then, please do take care.